Good morning, Christ Prez. We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and if you were with us last week, remember we looked at how God calls weak people like us to be the agents of his coming kingdom. We're invited to be the aroma of Christ, living in ways that show forth the good news about Jesus, and we're also letters of the Spirit sent to communicate the good news about Jesus with our words. God is on a mission to heal the world, and he includes us in it. But it's one thing to talk about all this uh, in images and metaphors, the aroma of Christ, letters of the Spirit. It's another thing to actually live it in the gritty realities of our broken world, where life is usually way more difficult than we want it to be. As we go about the work God has called us to, we can face the regular temptation to give up, to lose heart. This is what Paul addresses in our passage. At the beginning, in verse 1, he writes, We do not lose heart. And again, at the end, in verse 16, he writes, We do not lose heart. In and through all the afflictions and hardships and challenges and troubles that Paul faced, he managed not to lose heart. He kept going. He persevered. What about us? How can we be people who don't give up, who don't lose heart? Well, our passage, I think, tells us. It helps with this. Let's look at five truths that can help us keep going in the work God has called us to. Five truths to remember so that we will not lose heart. Okay, number one. Remember that your work is a gift from God. Your work is a gift from God. Look again at verse one. Paul writes, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. See, our work is a gift from God. Now, you might be thinking, Kevin, it doesn't say work, it says ministry. And I'm not in ministry. You're in ministry. You're the pastor. But not so fast. Remember, ministry is just a word for service. The Greek word is the word from which we get our word deacon. It was a word used of people who prepared and served food, people who waited tables, I mean, ministry is a super spiritual sounding word in our day, but it wasn't in Paul's day. It's just about work that serves others. And what Paul is saying is that God has has given us our work, um, and and this is by his mercy. You know, in, in your work, you have all kinds of opportunities to serve people in your vocation, in your place of employment, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your home, in all of it you're invited to be the aroma of Christ, a letter of the Spirit. And so your work, whatever it might be, it's yours by the mercy of God. Can you trust that God might be good at arranging your life so that there are all kinds of opportunities for you to serve others? See, maybe you're aware of of all of these opportunities. Maybe you're aware of just one opportunity. But whatever it is, you have this ministry by the mercy of God. And so don't lose heart. Remember that your work is a gift from God. It's, it's of his mercy. Second, remember that you have an enemy so you can expect opposition. Paul reminds us of this in verses three and four. He writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, Paul is reminding us that we're in a war, we're in a battle. Remember, it's not a cruise ship that we're on, it's a battleship. And this, family, it helps us to calibrate our expectations. On a cruise ship, 
You order a pina colada and you have no reason to expect it won't arrive. If it doesn't arrive, you lose heart. On a battleship, you don't lose heart when the pina colada doesn't arrive. Life without pina coladas is the norm on the battleship. If you go about your work like you're on a cruise ship, expecting everything to be easy and smooth, then you'll be totally unprepared for resistance and trouble, and you'll be devastated when it comes. But what if you remember that there is a great enemy, this one who Paul refers to here as the God of this world, and that this enemy will oppose the work of the kingdom at every turn? See, then you're prepared to expect resistance and trouble. It won't be a surprise when your labor isn't as fruitful as you thought it might be. It won't surprise you when some of your work seems to be in vain. See, Paul reminds us we're in a battle, so it's going to be really hard. But we don't lose heart. Third, remember that your work isn't about you. Look again at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, Paul writes, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, Paul is reminding us here that uh, <clears throat> we've been uh, decentered from our own stories. Jesus is at the center, and as those who follow Jesus, we're called to take this road of humble, self-giving love, serving others in Christ's name. It's just not about us anymore. Well, how does this help with not losing heart? Well, look, when I make myself the center of my story, uh, I'm usually up and down quite a lot. When things are going really well for me, I'm in no danger of losing heart. But when things aren't going well, when I experience disappointments and setbacks, the temptation to lose heart is just right there. See, when my work is about me, it's a roller coaster ride. And and let me let me speak as a pastor for a second. I don't. I, my guess is that I'm not the only pastor who struggles with this. But when I put myself in the center as a pastor. A high attendance Sunday can make me feel great about myself. A low attendance Sunday can lead to discouragement that lasts most of the week. Because I'm at the center of the story. By the way, there's nothing like a pandemic to expose the foolishness of this whole way. But Paul has reframed his story so that he's not at the center. Uh, He sees himself as the bearer of a message that is much greater than he is. He's living with Jesus at the center, and and this frees him to really serve others, to really look out for the interests of others before his own. Um, It doesn't mean that his life gets easier. It just means that he's not threatened by the hardships in the same ways. He writes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I like how one interpreter renders this squeezed, but not squashed, bewildered, but not befuddled, pursued, but not abandoned, knocked down, but not knocked out because it's not about us. Remember when you face the affliction and the trouble and the challenges that it's not about you. It's not really about you. Remember that your work isn't about you. Fourth, Remember that you're a treasure-filled jar of clay. In other words, um, remember that you are weak and that God's plan is to show his power in and through your weakness. You know, so, so often it's our places of weakness that lead us to lose heart. 
We don't succeed as much as we want to or in the ways that we want to. We have a hard time breaking bad habits and forming good ones. Our bodies betray us and begin to fall apart. We aren't the consistently stellar friends and spouses and parents that we had hoped to be. In all kinds of ways, we are weak. And family, it's not like our weaknesses catch God by surprise. Our weaknesses actually are taken up by God in his grace and become part of his strategy. God works in and through weak people like us to share his love with the world. And so maybe you feel like a terracotta pot, nothing fancy. You're you're cracked in places. God looks at you and he says, perfect. God says, this is how I'm going to display my loving power in and through you. My treasure in your jar of clay. Are you open to that? Can you get in touch with how God's grace is manifest in your weakness? As people who follow Jesus, we're never powerful in ourselves. We are weak vessels that carry a treasure. What's the treasure? Well, look at verse six. Paul writes, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the treasure is nothing less than the glory of God. The treasure is Jesus Christ himself. The same God who spoke light into existence in the beginning now shines in and through us so that others would come to know the glorious love of Christ. So remember that you're a clay pot and that God intends to display his glorious, humble love in and through your weakness. Then fifth, last, remember your future. It's kind of a strange thing to say, right? We usually say, remember your past, remember what has come before. But no, Paul directs his attention to the future. Remember your future. Why is that so important? Well, Imagine you have two guys and they're both given the exact same work to do. They have a a ditch to dig, a deep ditch, a wide ditch, a really big ditch, and the soil is hard and there are lots of rocks and roots. And so this is really, really hard, painful labor. The first guy is told that at the end of the day, he's going to be paid $20. And the second guy is told that at the end of the day, he's going to be paid $20,000. So here are two guys, they've got the exact same crummy circumstances digging that ditch, but only one of them is in danger of losing heart, right? While the first guy is complaining and grumbling and becoming more and more bitter and discouraged as the day progresses, the second guy thinks, this is the best job I've ever had. Because the second guy has hope. He believes that something really, really good is waiting for him at the end of the day. It's like he's living in a completely different story, one that has an incredibly good ending. His vision of the future completely changes and reshapes the way he experiences the present. Well, Paul knows that if we are to persevere in our work without losing heart, we need to keep before us a vision of our future. And so he reminds us of two realities, our future resurrection and our future glory. In verse 14, Paul links the certainty of our future resurrection up to the reality of Jesus' own resurrection. His point is that just as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, so you'll be raised from the dead. It's like we are tethered 
to Jesus. Whatever happens to him is going to happen to us. Death and resurrection. This is a perspective altering, altering truth. Uh, here's how one writer describes the difference it made for Paul. He says, It is because Paul believes in a future resurrection of the dead that he is presently willing to carry about in his body the dying of Jesus. It is because he looks forward to a future heavenly life that he is willing now to die daily. It is because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak so boldly in the present. Without faith in a future resurrection, Paul's present suffering would be not only intolerable, but also meaningless. He would, on his own admission, be a man most to be pitied. Family, I wonder how often you set your mind on your future resurrection, contemplate it, think about it. Most of the time when we think about our futures, especially when it comes to our work, our focus is is so much more narrow. We're thinking usually either about what we want to accomplish next with our work, or we're thinking about our retirement. That's what the future of work looks like for, for so many of us, for so many Americans. We're just thinking about retirement. Paul would have us think about our future resurrection and let that reality shape the way we live and work here and now in the present. Well, related to this, Paul reminds us that our future will be glorious. He writes, for this momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Earlier at the beginning of the letter, Paul said that the affliction he had experienced in Asia left him weighed down beyond measure. And here Paul uses the same words, weight and beyond measure, uh, to talk not about his past affliction, but about his future glory. And, And his point is that the weights aren't proportional at all. Paul's point is that our future glory will be overwhelmingly massive. However crushing our affliction might feel now, it will seem light compared to the goodness God has prepared for us in Christ. Now, this isn't at all to minimize the current affliction. The point isn't that the hardships and trials and tribulations and suffering we might experience now aren't real or that they don't matter. No, they are real and they do matter. The point is just that the glory that awaits is even realer even more substantial, weightier, more significant, more massive. You know, there there have been streams of the Christian tradition that have used the promise of eternal glory to downplay the significance of injustices and pain here and now. The hope of glory has led some to a kind of quietism and passivity. Since we have an eternity of glory ahead of us, the thinking goes, we don't need to be concerned about afflictions now, not our own and not those of others. Well, I hope you can see this isn't Paul's point at all. For Paul, the hope of eternal glory enables him and motivates him to persevere in the face of affliction, to keep going, to not lose heart as he pours himself out in loving service to others. And so family, remember your future, resurrection and glory. This life, I mean, Paul calls it uh, um, this light momentary affliction. It's preparing us for that. It's preparing us for that resurrected glorious future. So brief recap, our work is a gift from God. 
We have an enemy, so we can expect opposition. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. His power, the very power of God, is at work in our weakness, and he's preparing us for a really, really good future, resurrection and glory. And therefore, we don't lose heart. We might be squeezed, but we're not squashed. We might be bewildered, but we're not befuddled, pursued, but not abandoned. We might be knocked down, but we're not knocked out. Remember how loved you are, family. Believe the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.